Dennis. Andrew, Welcome to St Cross. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. Oh, all right. Can we go up into the come along? Come along through. Side. Come along through. Good. Lovely day too. It is. Come and visit St Cross. And it's nice and quiet in here, even though we're right in the centre of town. It's beautiful. Um, Today, Voices from Oxford is interviewing Professor Andrew Gowdy, who is a geographer in the university and is also master that is the head of one of the most recent founded colleges in the university, St. Cross College. He has received many awards and recognitions for his work, presidents of various geographical associations, and we're going to talk to him today both about his work and about St. Cross College and his work in the university. So, Professor Gaudi, I wonder whether we could start with your own work. Um, I've lost count of the total number of books you've published. It's over 30. Mm -hmm. um, and they range from a whole collection of different titles, um, climate to the human impact on the natural environment. So you are obviously in the centre of some of the research that's relevant to the big concerns in the world today, that is the environment. Could you, could you start by saying something about your own work and how you see that? having an impact on the present concerns about the nature of the human impact on the environment? Well, when I started work as a young research student in 1967, a long time ago, I was working in the natural world. And I always tried to avoid humans. They were a nuisance. We wanted to do pure work on the environment. And I got very interested in the Ice Age and natural climate changes. And I started writing a book in 1976 called Environmental Change. And it was the year when we had a great hot drought in Britain. I remember it. And it sort of began to make me think, is, is, is climate change just natural or are humans beginning to do something about it? And then a publisher said to me, this is a very interesting theme, why don't you write a book about it? Right. So I wrote a book called The Human Impact in 1981, the first edition and I tried to review all the things that humans were doing to change the environment. Not just global warming, but other big issues like soil erosion, the spread of salinity in irrigated areas, desertification, deforestation, and so on. And, and really it transformed the way that I think geographers were thinking about the links between humans and the environment. Other people had done it, but this was sort of a new bit of activity. Yes. So you were doing research on this long before the present concerns were voiced and made into the news that it is today. Yes, it's become mainstream now yes. in, in many disciplines. In the 70s, it was thought to be a fringe activity undertaken... Yes by people who ate nuts and had open-toed sandals and so on. You know, we were freaks, really. Yes, yes. So what is the... I mean, obviously, the question that a lot of viewers of this podcast will naturally ask is, is there something that Oxford can contribute to the study of the environment that helps the present situation? And indeed, have we got the analysis of the present situation correct? Are the headlines what we should believe? Well, Oxford's working very hard on this now. Um, 
we have set up in Oxford the Oxford University Centre for the Environment, which includes the Environmental Change Institute. Right. And we started to set that up in 1988 and then established it in 1991. And subsequently, there's been the Smith School for Enterprise and the Environment. And a lot of work is done in the, the traditional disciplinary departments right. as well. And the great thing about the... Um, Environmental Change Institute is that it is trying to do something about the main environmental problems that right. affect the world. And we're doing this partly by teaching. We run a whole series of very, very good master's courses for students right. from all over the world. And we started that in 94. Right. And now they're running NGOs government departments right. all over the world, and they're big whenever there are big international fora, for example, on, on climate change. Also a lot of work being done, um, serious research yeah. on, for example, what happens when you cut down trees in Amazonia. Right. But of course the other big part of the thing is to get involved with policy, to talk yes to government yes. and governments all over the world and be involved with decision-making. So two things that are relevant out of what you've said. <clears throat> First of all, if there are prospective students listening to this podcast and concerned about doing work concerned with the environment, Oxford's a place they might come. That's obviously true. Indeed. Yes. The second is, are governments listening and are you having an impact on the way in which the environmental issues are being dealt with by politicians? Governments are listening because we are involved with two big government initiatives. Right. One is called the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change, which um, brings together scientists from a range of British institutions to advise government. But we also host UK Climate Impacts Programme, which is specifically there to tell the government what is likely to happen Yes. to particular environments and habitats in the UK right. in, in, in the coming decades. Yes. And, and we're involved even with what appear in some ways quite trivial things, like advising on eco-labelling of domestic appliances right. so that we conserve energy yes, and, and, and yes. advice on home insulation. All these things seem yes. rather mundane. But they're they one of the great solutions yes, that we've got yes, to go I, for. I can understand that. Yep. One of the interesting things that I found in the work that you've done is the work on deserts. Um, the picture that somebody like me rather naively has of the desert, having visited one or two in America, is um, that they're all much the same. But what I gather from what you're saying is they're not, actually. These are very, very different environments, and we need to understand them. Deserts are hugely variable. Some are very right. steep and mountainous and are dominated by rivers, even though they're dry. Right. Some are very flat, extraordinarily dry and dominated by wind. Some actually have quite a lot of people in them. Um, there are some huge cities on Earth in the world's arid zones. Yes. Los Angeles, Karachi, Cairo, yes. Alexandria, yes. all these places, all they're close to deserts, like Beijing. Um, and so there are actually a large number of people on the face of the earth who are exposed to deserts and are at risk from the potential expansion outwards 
of deserts. Of desertification because of the warming process. Yeah. Yes. Just a, a final question on uh, this particular topic before mm. we switch to some questions to do with the university and with your college. Uh, is it reversible? Is climate change reversible? Yes. yes. Um, I believe that if one has a large number of educated people in the world who recognize the problem, that's the first stage. Yes. And that's yes. something we do in universities, yes. is to educate people. Exactly. Yes. So that's very important. Yeah. Um, then there is the question of policy and getting involved with government. And there are things that we as individuals can do and governments can do. And of course, they're beginning to do that. Yes. Um, even in America, some of the state governments have been very progressive. Even though the outgoing administration perhaps has been rather yes. unprogressive. Yes. So I'm not without hope. And one of the great things about the solutions is they don't just deal with global warming, right. but they deal with all the other big environmental issues yes. like energy shortage, yeah. pollution in towns, mm. deforestation and loss of biodiversity. Yes. Anything you do to stop global warming has multiple benefits, and I think that's a very important message to get across. Perhaps I should explain for the viewers of this podcast that we're speaking on the day of the inauguration of President Obama in the United States. Indeed we are. <laughs> and I understand that for a period you were a pro-vice-chancellor of the university, um, responsible for the development of the university, and so I'd like to ask you um, particularly um, costs a lot of money to run a big university, an internationally famous university like Oxford. How do you see Oxford's position financially and how it might develop in the future? Well, universities are very expensive, particularly universities like Oxford, which have got huge numbers of buildings and huge numbers of people to look after. And a lot of people think Oxford's rich. Yeah. But in comparison with our competitor universities, particularly in North America, we're extraordinarily poor, and yet we need to develop new subject areas. They're always coming along, right. whether it's stem cell biology or, or whatever, nanotechnology, yes. and the environment. environment. All these things have exactly. got to be developed, yeah. and so you need money for that. Sure. You need facilities that are world-class for teaching your graduate students. Yeah. The old days when a quill pen and a blotting paper and so forth were, were enough has gone. Yeah. We, 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 we have to work together much more as teams. You need to bring graduate students in to talk to the dons, the, the fellows, the lecturers in the university and yeah. so on. There are all those sorts of things that we, we need to do. And there's great areas of Oxford the university is trying to develop in terms of physical yeah. plant, right. like the old hospital site right in the middle of town. It's a yeah. once in a generation opportunity. Hugely expensive. Yes. So the, the university is actively raising large money at the moment with a, a big campaign. There's a big campaign yes. called Oxford Thinking. Yes. 1.25 billion. And that only touches the tip of the iceberg of what is required, particularly if we're going to try and fund the best graduate students in the world to come to Oxford. Yes. We, we want them on the basis of their ability, not on their ability to pay. 
Talking of graduate students leads me to a natural question about St. Cross College, because you are the head of the college, the master of the college. It is a graduate college. Uh, can, you, can you say, wh why does the university have colleges specifically for graduates, and, and why St. Cross? Well, initially the college was set up only in 1965 to provide a home for university teachers who hadn't otherwise got a college. Right. And I think also roughly at that time it was felt that undergraduate teaching, though very important, would become relatively less important as time went by because graduate studies would develop. So the university set up several colleges in, in the mid-1960s to provide a community for the university lecturers and for graduate students. And one of the interesting things about St. Cross was we never had any division between the students Indeed, yes. and the fellows. We're, yes. we're a one-class So it's ship a one-class college. Where everyone meets yes. together at yes. lunch or, or, yes. or dinner in the evenings and yes, so I've on. Yes, I've experienced that and it's very, very enjoyable. It's very good. Yes. Very good. You have a motto which interests us as voices from Oxford, which refers to the four corners of the earth. You know, that could even be a motto for voices from Oxford because we broadcast to the four corners of the earth. But where did that motto come from? What, what's its justification? Well, as far as I can make out, it was developed about ten years ago to reflect the fact that this was a truly international college. Right. I mean, currently we've got students from about 50-odd countries. Really? And well over 70% of our graduate body is from overseas. And we have a, a slightly cheesy college strapline, which is global engagement, right. global conversations. Right. And one thing we're trying to do is to develop Chinese studies, right. African studies, global health, global environmental issues, and so on. So we, we, right. we, we have a, an international, a global outlook. Yes. Well, that, that, I think, leads me to uh, perhaps the final question I want to put to you as uh, somebody who's played a very important role, both in the university and in the college. How do you see Oxford in, in the future? And um, when, when you've finished all your work for the university and for the college, how do you sit back and relax? What do you do then? <laughs> <laughs> Two I, questions there, really. I'm pretty optimistic about the future for Oxford. Um, I'm optimistic partly because it's improved hugely, I think, over the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, we really are a leading research university in a way Which that we use not in international tables, all across the world. Um, yeah. A lot of people think Oxford's strong in the humanities. Yes, we are, but we're very strong in the sciences. Exactly. We're very strong in medicine, yeah. and we can hold our head up high. And we've changed our structures for administration. Um, we've brought in a lot of people from outside with expertise. We have this very large, ambitious fundraising program to get the best new departments and, and so on. So I'm quite optimistic um, about the future. Um, but another aspect of the future I think is very interesting is the relative decline of individual disciplines, traditional yes. disciplines. Yes. 
and this building up of um, truly interdisciplinary yes. centres. Exactly. Exactly. And in a way, an interdisciplinary college like St. Cross yes. ties in with that yes. really quite nicely. Yes, that's right. Um, I don't know whether I shall ever retire. Of course, I shall have to retire. Um, curiously, one of my hobbies is writing. I find right. writing a great relaxation, right. which my graduate students cannot understand. I bet not. No. They find it purgatory. <laughs> but I actually do like um, right. writing. Yes. And I've just uh, done a little book recently on the history of exploration of the Egyptian desert between the wars by motor car, you know, Model T, ah, Fords and so on. Right. Yes. Endless things like that I'd, yes. I'd love to do in retirement. Yes. So we will be hearing from Professor Gaudi for many years to come. I sincerely hope so. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you much. very much. That's it.